This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Well, today, folks, we're going to have a great time. Uh, one of the our absolute favorite guests is with us. You can see him in a few minutes. Uh, he's been with us many times since he started in 2017. He's one of the best UFO investigators out there, and he's got incredible stories to tell today. Uh, the last time he was with us, uh, it was an extraordinary show. Uh, because he brought on his friend who has experiences he's been researching for years, Dolly Saffron. And you can, if you're a subscriber, do not fail to listen to the Dolly Saffron case or just go to the search engine and search Preston Dennett. Preston, welcome to the show. Hi, Whitley. Thanks for having me back on. Well, good. I'm so glad you're here and we're going to have a wonderful time. We're going to be talking about a lot of UFO cases today because Preston has, over the years, assembled a number of books about UFO cases. And when you do that, it turns out you're doing something really unusual about some very strange things. Preston has been researching UFOs since 1986 when he was just a boy of uh, 21 uh, I was unfortunately twice as old as him, which <laughs> tells you where where we're going here. But in any case, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about how you did get started, because I don't think we've I'm not I'm not sure we've ever asked you that on the show. <laughs> I certainly wasn't looking for it. Honestly, I was super skeptical, vehement. I was sure there was nothing to this and kind of got dragged into it, kicking and screaming involuntarily uh, and was quite shocked. I mean, really, I was not a happy camper. Uh, how it all rolled out was, I can point to the exact date, November 17, 1986. Uh, the news came on and started talking about a sighting over Alaska. It's a very famous case, which is very well known in the UFO community. I'm sure you've heard of it. Oh Captain, yeah. <laughs> Captain Kenju Tarochi, Japanese commercial airliner, was followed by a UFO for an hour, radar, the whole deal. Of course, on the news, there was none of those details. They just joked about it. But I remembered that my brother Mark had come running into the house some four or five years earlier. I saw a UFO <laughs> just out of his mind. And I'm just kind of like, Mark, you're, you're crazy. But after hearing this news uh, cast, I decided to ask Marco what he saw. And boy, did I get a shock. He, in short, was driving with his two friends, Bill and Greg, who I know. And uh, this was at night and late 1970s or early 80s, maybe. And uh, saw this object, which they first thought was a helicopter, but it was, clearly wasn't. It was quite close, treetop level, metallic disc, colored lights, a dome on top, totally silent. And they chased this thing in their car down Reseda Boulevard, actually passing other cars who were also chasing it. And I'm like, Mark, are you serious? And you're like, listen, if you don't believe me, call Phil and Greg, his friends, which I did. And they confirmed the story. And I started asking other family members uh, and found out that this is something that is in my family. 
my, my brother's wife, Mark, his wife, Christy, had had very close encounters with little blue beings uh, as, a, as a young girl for like two weeks. They came into her room. And uh, my other sister-in-law, I have five brothers and sisters, so pretty big family. Uh, she had had a close encounter, not only with UFOs, uh, but with greys. She walked right up next to them outside her home in Van Nuys when she was in college. And further questioning revealed that I have two nephews who've had encounters, one with humanoids. Uh, never got to ask my parents. My dad was vehemently skeptical. My mom had passed away. So I don't know if it goes farther back. I suspect it does. But yeah, probably a lot, so, yeah. A lot, a lot of friends, too, and coworkers. I was not a happy camper, Whitley. I was really upset. I really was. Um, this should have been covered in the news. This should be taught in schools. And it wasn't. And there was a cover-up. Couldn't believe it. And uh, it kind of hurt my feelings that, you know, my family, friends, and coworkers, people I loved and trusted, were keeping secrets from me. So that's how I got involved. Yeah. And you became a researcher, not, a, I wouldn't say obsessed, but oh, certainly I <laughs> very, very thorough, very thorough. <laughs> oh, speaking of thoroughness, free dreamlanders. I don't know how this relates. Actually, we're going to take a brief break uh, on the free side. We'll be right back. We're talking to Preston Dennett, his new book, not from here, selected UFO articles, volume four, and when we get into this, and you, some of you probably read the earlier volumes. If not, they're all worth reading because Preston has an absolute genius for se selecting these extraordinary cases, and they are simply extraordinary. Uh, let's start at the beginning. When I opened the book, I thought, surely Preston has has gotten to the bottom of this bucket this he's scraping the bottom now and then i read the first chapter heading car lift cases <laughs> i thought maybe he's this is going to be more interesting than i think and that has proved to be the case so tell us a little bit about just that car lift cases yeah, I'm, I I became interested in this because I got my own car lift case when there was a wave of sightings over Topanga Canyon. Uh, this was in 1992 to 1994, and a couple described driving through the canyon when an object came over their car and lifted it up into the sky. I do believe they had missing time. But then very early on, you know, shortly after I got involved in this field, of course, the Knowles family case from Australia earned international headlines and uh, that occurred in 1988 so i was still pretty new to this field it's a really famous case with faye Knowles and her three sons driving along the nullabar plains in southern australia late at night it's a very remote area and had an object come down and actually landed on the roof of their car very unusual but lifted it up and uh, it wasn't until I was writing a book, UFOs Over Nevada, that I ran into three cases in a row like this. And I started to 
remember others. I thought, oh my gosh, this is a thing. And these are not uh, the majority of these, uh, what I would call, you know, people being taken on board. These are objects coming down and just lifting the car up, carrying it anywhere from a few yards, a couple hundred feet to a mile, two miles, six miles in one case. It's so <laughs> bizarre. And I was shocked to find so many cases. I mean, as you may know, car, these UFOs do have a penchant for chasing cars down the road. But this yeah. is a new level. Well, let's take it to an even newer, higher level. Some teenagers are driving along the high, in, in, in an area, a rather isolated area. They get their pickup truck stuck in the sand. Yeah. Tell us the rest of the story. Yeah, this is an interesting one. This is one of the ones that really got me thinking. Uh, and I honestly would have ignored it if it, because it's so bizarre, but it's not unique. This was the earliest case I could find, by the way, 1959. This was outside of Goldfield, Nevada. A group of four teenagers, I believe, were just uh, driving around, they had vacationing basically from California and became stuck in the sands, the desert sands outside of Goldfield, Nevada. And if you look this up on a map, it's a pretty isolated area and tried to dig themselves out, couldn't, and decided, well, one of us will walk out in the morning and get help. And so they're just sitting there in the bed of the pickup truck talking. The subject of UFOs actually came up and uh, they thought, wouldn't it be cool if one came down? <laughs> Uh, which is interesting to me because there's a lot of cases like that where people will start talking about UFOs or mentally even call one out, and that's when they do have a sighting. So I think there is some synchronicity or connection here. And sure enough, one did show up. This was all coming from one witness who reported his case to New Fork many years following the incident anonymously. Uh, and he says that this object came right down lifted the truck up, and put it back on the road. And I know all this must sound to a skeptic, uh, but I do have a number of cases where UFOs have basically rescued people from car accidents or during car accidents. I think that fits into this category. But many years later, he contacted his girlfriend who was there to see if she could verify this and remembered it. And that's the first thing she said. She says, do you remember that? And he's like, yes, I do. What do you remember? And they remember the same thing. The only difference was she said it was a very fun, joyful experience. She was laughing and it really quite frightened him. Well, that's interesting because the, um, uh, this business of, of telepathy is turning out to be extremely important. Uh, I know, uh, Jimmy Blanchett, uh, who works with these radios, uh, the, uh, at the 144.1 frequency where he makes contact using the radios, he started with a UFO sighting and a telepathic request as to how to get in contact with them. And he proceeded to be given the 144.1 frequency and he used it for contact with them ever since. I haven't been in touch with him for a while. But that's an example of tel telepathy. Uh, John Martin in uh, Georgia, who films UFOs almost every night, 
uses telepathy, I believe. And I think that we should all understand that this actually does work. I mean, it not always and and not even often, but it, it does work. And once people get into it uh, and they start to make more telepathic contact, it begins to work better. Sort of a channel opens. Can you tell us a little bit about your views about telepathy and contact and maybe we could, how we might use it to to actually improve the contact situation. Yeah, it certainly turns up in a lot of contact cases. People will receive a very strong, I mean, I had this experience. You receive a strong impulse to go outside and there is a craft. Telepathy is how they communicate almost universally when people are having you know face-to-face -face contact or being on board a craft. So this is not as unusual as it might think. Uh, telepathy has been proven, by the way, in a laboratory setting a number of times. This is something we all do have the ability to do. So, it's so what's, been, what's been proven is that it works statistically. Yeah. But what hasn't been done is we can't figure out what the connection is. Is that correct? Or is, yeah. there, is there some field that we've discovered? Or yeah, I don't think anyone's detected actual thought waves, what the spectrum, what you know, part of the electromagnetic spectrum, if any, is you know, involved with telepathy. I suspect it is measurable. Uh, but yeah, I'm not sure we know from mainstream science exactly what that is. Uh, but it does appear to cover vast distances instantly. So I'm not sure it's even part of that because uh, it seems to supersede light in terms of a instantaneously. I don't know. I do know it's real. Uh, there's so many cases of this where people will, you know, even see a UFO and get messages from it. I had that happen. I was had interviewed this woman. I'll call her Wendy, who was having major encounters, and I was transcribing her interview, and it was a wild case, one of my early cases, but she was talking about hybrid babies and punching and ET and all this stuff. And I started to second guess it and had a very strong, irresistible impulse to run under the roof of my condo. I lived in Canoga Park, California at the time. Got up there and 10 seconds later, maybe this UFO showed up and it gave me a telepathic message. And honest to God spoke to me, not so much in English, but with a sense of knowing and said, it's us, you know, we're Wendy's ETs. Here you are, here we are, if you don't believe, Watch this, this darn thing, which was a hundred, maybe 200 feet away, right above the apartment building across the way there, across the uh, LA river, it starts darting around back and forth. This thing gave me a message. It was a very personal message, but uh, absolutely it spoke to me. And uh, that's the first time that happened, but it wouldn't be the last. You, you want to tell us anything about the message at all, or just a hint maybe? Yeah, I mean, all it said was, you know, we're real. This is us. We're Wendy's ETs. Um, if you don't believe, I mean, we're, she's telling the truth is basically what they came to tell me. And uh, that was it. <laughs> yeah, I called Wendy up and I'm like, you're not going to believe this. She's like, oh. <laughs> she believed it. She's like, I told you I was telling the truth. What do you mean? I'm like, well, it's not that I was doubting you. It's just a big story. You know, it's a lot to wrap my head around. <laughs> She ended up taking me out later, 
couple of months later, they came down again. Um, full Did force. you see them? Oh, yeah. I mean, not the ETs themselves, but a, this object came down and it was 20, 30 feet away, 20 feet off the ground. This beautiful sphere covered with scintillating gold lights. Ex it was exquisite. I mean, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. We were jumping up and down. It was unbelievably beautiful. You know, folks, probably some of you are jealous about him getting all this, especially some of you other UFO investigators. Well, I am too, because Preston really does get this happening to him. And um, most of us don't. I mean, you know, we don't uh, see anything. And of course, I'm always waking up in the middle of the night and I see things and I certainly have a lot of contact. But an incident like that has never happened to me. I wish it had. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, I've had sev several of that actually over the years. Um, Associated yeah, contactees is a big clue if you want to see something, you know, hang out with someone who's having contact. Yeah, well, that's that's a, a good advice, I guess. You know, let's let's circle back. Uh, one of the most popular dreamlands I've done in many years was the interview with you and Dolly, Dolly Saffron. And I want to sort of catch up and find out how Dolly's doing and is her, her close encounter experience is continuing and are used to still in touch and all of that good stuff. And we're going to do that for you, Dreamlanders, just after this brief break. We're talking to Preston Dennett, his new book, uh, Not From Here. And boy, is that ever true, Preston. We were talking about just starting to talk about Dolly, and how is Dolly now, and what's going on in her life, if I may ask? Yeah, she's doing well. Um, she is continuing to have experiences in terms of still being in telepathic contact with the ETs, uh, but she says they've bugged out. They are not hanging around Earth right now due to our magnetic fields being so unstable. But yeah, she's still absolutely in contact with them. I've had a bunch of experiences with her, paranormal, and one at least UFO experience, uh, where we visited the Laughlin UFO Megacon together. This was last year, well, now two years ago, about a year and a half. And uh, Talata, the craft that she pilots, that she goes on board, came down and did a little display. So I love that when you were investigating a case firsthand and you become a participant. And uh, we've had, yeah, some out-of-body adventures together, which is beyond cool. So, yeah, she's doing well. Well, wait a minute. You've had some out-of-body <laughs> adventures together that are beyond cool. You're going to have to expand on that for us. <laughs> oh, I was hoping you'd ask because it's... <laughs> so amazing you know as you may know i'm really into the obe's astral projection i wrote a book on it after learning how to do it and getting pretty good at it and uh one day i thought you know what i'm gonna visit dolly and uh she at the time was in florida i believe georgia at any rate i was in california and i found my you know self out of body and i'm like okay this is what i'm gonna do and managed to get to her house and uh, 
people never see me when I'm out of body. I've tried to, you know, you're a ghost, basically. And I tried to get family members and friends to notice me. They never do. And so I appeared in Dolly's house and I saw her walking around. She was on the phone and she whirled around and looked me straight in the eye and spoke to me and said, I can't talk now. I'm being robbed. And that quite alarmed me and pulled me right back into my body. And at that time we were talking daily. You know, I'm, I've done hundreds of hours of interviews for with her for the book. And we spoke the next day and she's talking to me and I'm thinking, well, she's not bringing up that she was robbed. So maybe I'm mistaken because that would be the first thing I would tell somebody. But then she says, you know, I saw you last night. I'm like, you did? What do you mean? She says, you came out of body and visited me, didn't you? I'm like, yes, I saw you. Um, she says, I was in the garage. I'm like, yeah, that's where you were. Uh, and uh, she says, I said, what did you say? Because you said something to me and I, you know, and I want a verification. And she says, well, I was on the phone. So I, I was busy and I saw you and I said, I can't talk now. Now I'm on the phone with Rob. I thought, oh, <laughs> I thought you said I'm being robbed, but it was close enough that uh, it was verification for me. And here's the really cool end note to this. It was, it was a week later, I'm in bed, you know, asleep and my room fills up with light, wakes me up. And I open my eyes thinking, what is going on? And Dolly appears in this golden aura. I mean, looking amazing. And she's smiling ear to ear, looking at me. And it turn, turns out turnabout is fair play. Uh, she really shocked me. And following that, yeah, we started having some shared out of body experiences. And real quick, one super cool one was she took me out. She's good at this. I no, mean, no, we'll... not real quick. Go ahead and tell us the whole story. I thought you were kind of winding up, but this is so cool. Just <laughs> go right ahead. We're, we're all ears and eyes. All right. Yeah, because this was so amazing to me. I, um, having had a lot of OBEs, I've never had them shared. I got close with my sister-in-law. She remembered them as dreams. But Dolly appears in my room. She's like, you ready? I'm like, I'm ready. And off we go to the Kuiper Belt, way out beyond Earth. And it's an asteroid field that's just endless and so beautiful. I mean, these things are just, I mean, I can't even begin to describe what it looks like. It's just giant asteroid field spreading out forever into the distance in different <laughs> shapes and sizes and um, textures kind of. And my attention focuses on this one thing that is different from the others. It's a glowing orange ball and it's super smooth. And I'm like, what is that? And Dolly says, well, what do you think it is? I said, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. And it's all I can tell you is it's not natural. She says, well, that's your answer. And, you know, later when we were back in the physical world, we talked more about it. And she's basically, yeah, that's E.T. That is one of their outposts, so to speak. So that was one of a number of adventures we've had. She once took me to the past to see giants on Earth, uh, which, you know, if you look into the subject of giants on our planet, there's some outstanding evidence that they did walk on earth 
and she showed me. I got to see giants. It was amazing. Where were you when you saw this? Could you tell? Gosh, I'll have to ask Dolly. She probably knows. Um, we'll have I, to have Dolly back on the show, and we're, we're going to do another show with Dolly, folks. This is such a fascinating person. You know, when you get into this business of searching around in the world of UFOs and all of these strange things, you also meet people who are really, really extraordinary and strange, and Dolly is certainly one of them. Uh, now, I want to go on. We're sort of working our way through this extremely cool new book, Not From Here, uh, because what it what I love about these books, and this is just one of uh, quite a impressions. This is the fourth one of these Preston has written is that they are mind openers and mind benders. Uh, you read these stories and you think, I, my word, wh what are we and where do we actually live? And wh wh why is the world like this? And why are we pretending it's something different? And I guess before we go on into crashing into UFOs, which we're going to be talking about in a minute, I want to float this question. We live with blinders on. And I, I you don't anymore, Preston. I mean, you just, you've had your mind blown so many times and your, your blinders have burned out. <laughs> so why is that? How, what advice would you give people to where they might notice more of what's actually all around us? Yeah, this is something I have noticed because my belief system was shattered over and over again. My mom passed away. That shattered my belief system. Finding out UFOs were real. You know, it just happened so many times. What I, and people have a tendency to view the world through their belief system and interpret things according to what they think they know. And what I would caution people to do is just drop your beliefs because and focus on knowledge that is experiential. You have to know what you know um, and not rest on beliefs that are unsupported by actual experience. I mean, you can read all you want about other people's experiences. That's not true knowledge. Ultimately, true knowledge comes only from personal experience. And if you want to see a UFO, you can, or go out of your body, or see a ghost, or a Sasquatch, or whatever. Uh, so I think it, people just need to step back, be objective, meditate, leave fear behind, and open their mind to the possibilities. Uh, with, with OBEs, the main, I would say, obstacle from having experience is basically fear, laziness, and skepticism. And if you can overcome that, you can have these experiences. It's not hard to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can overcome that assumption that this can't happen to me. Because actually it can happen to anyone, if you, especially if you want it. And generally, if you want it to happen to you, it's something you, what happens is something you would want. In other words, you don't have a bad experience. And I've right. had good experiences and bad experiences. Most most close encounter witnesses have. How about Dolly? Has she ever had bad experiences? No, I don't think she would. You know, I'd have to. 
I don't want to speak too much for her. Uh, yeah, I understand. But, but we'll ask her the next time we're on the show. She's, she's, had, she's you know, she had some fear initially early on. I know at age 14, it really freaked her out to see the ETs looking down at her from a craft at her bed, you know, into her bedroom. And she turned around and dived under the bed in fear. But following that, no, it's been pretty much all positive for her. She's, you know, fully conscious of during her experiences. And if you know Dolly, she's pretty fearless anyway. <laughs> she's a real go-getter. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, no, I, I can't say that she's had negative experiences with ETs really at all. Okay, well, we're going to talk about crashing into UFOs. And just for free dreamlanders, we're going to be doing that in just a few minutes. We'll be right back. Okay, we're talking to Preston Dennett, his new book, Not From Here. Uh, it's also incredible cover on it and beautifully illustrated by Christina Dennett, uh, who I gather is your wife or sister. or She's my brother's wife. Uh, your brother's wife. My sister-in-law, uh, yeah. Sister-in-law. Well, she's a wonderful artist, and it's it's full of very cool, fun illustrations illustrating each chapter. And what I want to talk about now is this business of crashing into a UFO. And uh, let's just let's just let you roll with it. I'm not even absolutely sure what you what you'll say, but uh, let's start with planes and then we're going to go to cars because that happens too, folks. It does. Yeah, people might not be aware of this, but UFO collisions with vehicles of all kinds do happen. And I was really not aware of this. I mean, I knew of a few car cases. After putting out this book, I'm getting quite a few more coming at me. Uh, but yeah, planes, trains, automobiles, boats, uh, people have collided with UFOs many times. Uh, not as many as you might think, considering how close they do come to planes and how many pilot encounters there are. I found about a half dozen to a dozen with planes. Uh, one of the earliest I found occurred in 1955 over Pixley. This is in California, outside of Bakersfield, Southern California. It's a very well verified case. What I find interesting about this is the witness was a major, an Air Force major and basically said that he was, quote, struck by a flying saucer. He says it was like hitting a brick wall. There were ground witnesses as well. Edwards Air Force Base did try to cover this up and deny it, but later had to admit, because Major Mervyn Stevens did give an interview, Edwards Air Force Base officials admitted that this plane struck something and that it looked like it was hit from above. And that's just one of several plane encounters. Probably one of my favorite occurred on May 2nd, 1974. And this caused quite a press uproar in Mexico where it happened over Mexico City. It involved a private pilot. Uh, his name is uh, Carlos Montiel. And he's flying along on a little Piper Aztec uh, plane, little thing. It was an old plane. He was a little bit worried about it. And he thinks this is perhaps why these UFOs showed up. There was three of them that came right, I mean, surrounded his plane. And one came right up under him and actually struck the landing gear. 
It shook him up so bad that he was crying and weeping as he's in contact with the control tower and came in for a landing. Um, he continues to talk about this to this day. You can look this up. These, everything, all these cases, I footnote and source. I am not making any of this up. Uh, I was surprised to find how many cases there are. There's a very famous case of a Chinese commercial airliner, which had something strike its nose cone at 26,000 feet. Now this could be, there are a few birds who do fly at that height, condors and geese, uh, but there was no debris on the nose cone, which usually is there. Hard to say, but yeah, I found about, I think seven or 10 cases of planes striking these objects and some are very well verified i wonder if there have been any crashes caused by this that we maybe that that situations that you know of that that there have been damage to the planes that crashed them or that mysterious crashes that maybe have been caused by this are you aware of anything like that oh yeah there's a few of these cases where the planes did go down and you know, causing loss of life. I mean, there was a, a famous UFO crash retrieval in Coyami, Mexico, that this UFO apparently struck a plane and that plane went down and this UFO went down and was eventually recovered by U.S. military forces. Uh, this is all written about in the book Mexico's Roswell by No Torres and Ruben Uriarte, well-respected researchers, I think. So yeah, I think that does happen, but these are super rare. Um, I mean, you can count the number of cases on you know both hands in terms of planes actually striking them, whereas the number of pilot encounters is well into the thousands. And they will appear right in front of the cockpit <laughs> at times and circle around the planes and do all kinds of stuff. Well, yeah, so, there's an yeah. extraordinary video of the UFOs circling the Concorde. Uh, as it was making its maiden flight, as if to say, we can fly circles around you. Yeah, literally fly circles. <laughs> literally, yeah. exactly. All right. Um, now, what about cars? That happens too, doesn't it? Yes. In fact, after putting out this book, I've been contacted by a number of people and found at least five cases. And I already had a dozen. And some of these are really extraordinary. Um, I would say one of the most interesting involved a gentleman by the name of David Morris, who this was in 1967 in Kent, Ohio. He's on his way back from work late one evening and sees a glow ahead of him on uh, the road. And as he pulls up along towards this glow, he sees it's a craft of some kind and it's very unusual. So his attention is really on the craft, not on the road in front of him until he sees movement. And uh, looking ahead of him on the road, he saw a number of short little figures, helmeted, glowing, um, running across the road. They were not paying any attention to oncoming traffic. He slammed on his brakes and a thump hit one of these guys, screeched to a stop and starts to get out of his car and looking back at them can see they're not human. They're looking at him. He becomes filled with fear and races home. 
Um, he did call his best friend and told him what happened after he calmed down. They went back to the scene. They found his skid marks on the road. Uh, his vehicle was slightly damaged in terms of the chrome being bent and uh, dented. They ended up calling the police who did an investigation. Uh, they ended up contacting UFO researchers. It became a pretty well-verified case. You can listen to the audio recordings of David Morris describing this incident. Uh, which where I where can we listen to those recordings? I put them on my YouTube channel so you can. Oh, okay. And that's right. Preston, tell us about your YouTube channel, please. Uh, he's got a, he's got a terrific YouTube channel. Thanks Whitley. Yeah. I'm having so much fun with it. I mean, it's a lot more work <laughs> than I ever expected. It's still a pretty new channel. Two, three years. I've been doing YouTube at the advice of a friend who said, you know, you really should consider getting a YouTube channel. So I've been putting out my research for people who you know don't have the time to read books or are just not into it and putting all the cases out that I can. Because uh, I'm, you know, I'm not in this for the money. This is an important subject. And I really think people should know about it and uh, having a lot of fun putting out each of the cases that I investigate or whatever I look into onto this channel and did a whole episode on these collisions. <laughs> uh, Anybody who's in this for the money has got a, got a <laughs> nasty surprise. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a lot of money in this, uh, but it, it's too fascinating. Once you get it, once it happens to you, especially, you just become obsessed. You you can't you can't stay away from it. I'm that way. I mean, I just yeah. you know, the visitors. The last time I had an encounter with them was last night. And it wasn't a physical encounter, but it was a. It was still there, and um, you know, you that happens in your life, and you just you can't let it go. What about you? Do you have encounters uh, of any kind, physical or non-physical? Yes, um, and it's taken me. It's been a long pathway for me because uh, I'm like, why am I so obsessed with this? You know, there's got to be something in my past that I can point to towards contact. And there's little tiny clues, a possible missing time incident when I was 12, where I missed lunch. I was so upset because, you know, we had with five, you know, six kids in the family. You don't miss a meal. <laughs> you just don't. And where was I? I was so upset. I'm like, how? I, I don't understand that. So there's a couple of little things like that. But then I started having sightings. I did have a missing time incident in 1992 when a little orb came down in front of my vehicle. And I was I stopped. I looked at this thing and it darted away. And that's the last thing I remember. I should have turned around and gone back to my brother Mark's house. I was two minutes away. I said, I saw this thing. Oh, my God. And I didn't. I don't remember anything after that. I forgot the whole incident, in fact. I didn't remember any of it at all until months later. So number of sightings after that, started having dreams of being on board these craft with the you know rounded walls, tables, uh, holding babies on a few occasions. And I guess I'll just go there because I haven't really talked about this at all. 
but this was on my birthday last year. Yeah, I think it was last year, maybe the year before that, where I did have a full-on onboard encounter. And uh, talking to Dolly about it, because I thought, could this be an out-of-body experience? But after she heard me talk about it, she's like, mm, I don't think so. I think you were physically taken. Uh, because what happened was I found myself being sucked up this tunnel-like thing. And it was quite, you know, I've had a lot of OBEs, and it was some ways similar to that, but it was different. And I popped out in this center of this craft and rounded walls. There was grays. Uh, I'm laying on a table and they're asking me, am I all right? Am I all right? And I said, I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I want to get up and look around. Right. Uh, and they were very concerned about my well-being. And I said, listen, I'm just fine. Can I get up? And they said, okay. And there was windows all around. It was a 30 foot room. Maybe there were several other people there, normal humans some grays. I walked up to this tall gray and she looks down at me and tilts her head a little bit. She's very loving, very kind. She says, is this what you thought it would be like? I said, it's much better. This is amazing. And uh, I ran to the window and I'm looking down at the site. We dropped down to the earth in a second from outer space, it seemed. And I think we picked someone up, I'm a little vague on that, rose back up and uh, wasn't a whole lot more than that. At some point they came up to me, they said, drink this. It was this little- You weren't concerned? No, I felt absolutely safe. I felt very, it was a very loving, positive experience for me. I had no fear whatsoever. I felt I was with friends. I really, really did. And uh, I looked at it, I'm like, it's a little crystal kind of well, beaker, sort of small. It had this kind of pink liquid in it and not super, I mean, it was viscous, like not like pancake batter, more like a smoothie, right? But clear and sort of pink, almost neon, but not quite. And I took a sip of it and, like, and it was very subtle, almost a kiwi lime taste. And uh, they took it back. I'm like, wait, can I have another? <laughs> and they seemed quite surprised at that and then gave it to me. And I took another sip and it knocked me out. And boom, I'm back in bed. The milk of Nepenthe. <laughs> yeah. I, I have drunk that many times. Not, not, it, not the same formula, but the same thing you know it's i think it's made with opium i think it's very real it's I'm interesting sure. that you even mention it because it's it has concluded quite a few experiences of my own with this drinking of this liquid and then i'm completely out until the next day yeah i wrote about this in a previous volume of not from here alien drinks <laughs> it is a thing they will do this and it was so well, tell us a little bit about some other i mean i don't imagine they have cocktails or anything like that but maybe they do tell us a little bit about alien drinks fascinating <laughs> uh yeah i mean there was one case in england uh where a whole family was taken on board gosh the, their name escapes me uh, but at any rate 
it was your typical sort of onboard experience. They all get examined, a little tour of the craft, get some information, and they're set back down. And before they're let out, all of them are given a drink. And they said it was bitter. Oftentimes, people will describe this as a bitter, milky drink. That's been my experience, bitter, milky drink. Just That is to say opium in, in, in some kind of a solution. Yeah, and they said, this will make you forget. It's important that you don't remember this right away, but you will remember. And they gave it to everyone except for the youngest kid who was four. And uh, the next thing they know, they're on the road and the little girl's like, we were on a spaceship, we were on a spaceship. And they're all looking at her like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, out of the mouths of babes, uh, and, uh, she remembered fully, but no one listened to her until they later recalled this. And that's the typical alien drink account. There are a few cases where people said they felt it was just fruit juice for nourishment. Uh, but generally it seems to be medicinal in some way or having to do with uh, having making it so a person won't remember and can be returned home. I asked Dolly about it and she says, actually, this is a drink that protects you against uh, gamma radiation and it's to for your health. So I think there's probably some different things going on here. Yeah, I would think so that, that there might be many different, uh, many different things going on and uh, because there are many different reasons to give people drinks. Uh, some of them being to obviously to help them forget or make them forget. Uh, maybe nourishment is one and but maybe you know you drink a lot of things that that have psychedelic content in this world like ayahuasca and there's other substances that are drunk and i wonder if any of these drinks might be hallucinogenic in some way have you ever uh, explored that at all um to a degree i did ask dolly about it and she says no no they don't do that uh mm -hmm. I I don't have any evidence of that. Uh, one lady, she did was given a drink and she says it actually improved her vision. So uh, I think they're largely health related in some way or nourishment or those are the three things I came up with. It's, it's medicinal, it's got something to do with health or it's to help you not remember. Uh, yeah, so, to, to, to cause you to lose your memory. Yeah, I think that's yeah. honestly what's going on. But no, I have no evidence of ETs taking hallucinogenics or feeding it to people. Government, perhaps. Yes, they actually have done that. <laughs> well, yeah, they did that in the MK Ultra experiments, in the Tuskegee experiments. No, the Tuskegee experiments were where they infected black people with uh, syphilis to see how it how that worked out yeah. turned out not to work out very well at all so i think some of the my labs might involve this yeah yeah exactly that's why i brought it up but there there seems to be something of hallucinogenic something hallucinogenic about the whole thing and uh uh, I mean the the my lab thing, but not so much the ET thing. And yet, at the same time, when you're face to face with this, you have to wonder: Am I hallucinating? Yeah, it's a, definitely an outlier of an experience for a lot of people. <laughs> it's funny. Oh, yeah, 
when you have something like this happen to you, you start going through, well, Jay Allen Hynek called it, called it theory escalation. Uh, you don't want to jump to like, this is real. Like, is this a dream? Yeah. You know, is this, what am I looking at? Is that a helicopter? What is going on? When that orb dropped on in front of my car, my first thought was bird. My, my second was firecracker. My third was reflection. But my fourth was like, this is real. I don't know what this is, but it's a glowing orb the size of a golf ball in front of my windshield. I, it's real. I felt like it was looking at me. I seriously felt like this thing knows I'm looking at it and it's looking at me. I think those little orbs might be something like cameras or something along those lines or sort of a bio, a biological machine that can do all kinds of, of unusual things. Um, the, the, let's get back to the crashes. Uh, 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 I wanted to talk about the Carlos de los Santos Montel case. Uh, he's flying his Piper. Uh, from uh, Guerrero to Mexico City, and this then what happens? Tell us a little bit more about that case, if you will. Yeah, this was so interesting because they surrounded his plane, and he's done drawings of these. These were small metallic craft, not super big, 10, 20 feet across, your typical flying saucer, dark, metallic in appearance, silent, as near as you could tell. And uh, they came like under both wings or right up next to them, but one came right up under his aircraft and actually struck his landing gear. Did not severely damage it. Uh, yeah, it did touch it, but it was more like a fender bender, which is I think true in a number of these cases. They will just kind of nudge. Uh, not all, some are actually full on, you know, struck, but uh, it was not super long in terms of duration, uh, but really caused a huge emotional reaction for him. Uh, he was weeping and crying. And after he landed, he was visibly shaking. They took him to the doctor. He was fine, but just emotionally shaken. It became a very well-publicized case. Uh, but he wonders if perhaps they were actually trying to rescue him because he had some severe doubts about the uh, plane engine and how well it was going to run. It was quite old. Uh, so that could be what's going on in this case. It seemed very much intentional as opposed to an accident, which is what's true, I think, in most of these cases. I hate to speculate, but that's what it looks like. And I want to talk now about the Chris Rutkowski case. Uh, from June of 1974, because this could have been a case that is being written up right now uh, in, in the Tic Tac incidents and things like that. It's it's just like what is happening now. And, you know, the recent go government has gone back into debunking mode, apparently, and has been now trying to debunk the, the, the cases that it said were unknowns a little while ago. And But I'm not going to go down that road right now, partly because it doesn't interest me and it's obviously a, 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 a silly season attempt at recovering, getting back to the old world where they could snicker at the truth and, and humiliate the witnesses. Um, and they're not going to get that. 
they're not going back there, the gentlemen and ladies of the Defense Department. I'm sorry, but that's over, and it's going to stay over. Okay, the Rakowski case, June 74. He's flying a Phantom uh, jet at 30,000 feet. Tell us more. Yeah, this is a Japanese Air Force pilot, actually. I wanted to find that original source on this. Oh, I'm sorry. It's it's it, I'm 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 so sorry, folks. Uh, it's a Japanese pilot. Chris was. I thought the name was familiar. Chris is a researcher, and yeah. you 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 got the story from him. That okay. Let's yeah. just be clear about that. All right. All right. Yeah, Chris, Go ahead. Chris Rutkowski is a well-respected Canadian researcher who's I think doing really good work in this field, and that's um, who I'm citing in this case. Most of these cases do have multiple sources, and I try to track them down. I had a little bit of trouble with this case, but I felt it was legitimate. He's a good researcher. And yeah, June 1974, the Japanese Air Force pilot is flying a Phantom jet and uh, encounters a 40-foot wide metallic disc and locks his weapons on this object. And according to the, the case, this disc strikes the nose of this uh, phantom jet, causing what unfortunately ended up being a fatal accident. And I wish I could find more information on this case. I wasn't able to, uh, but I thought it was important to include because it fits the pattern that we're seeing in some of these other cases. So Yeah, the gunnery officer died. The pilot survived the ejection when they ejected from the plane. But there are a number of cases like this that you bring up. Uh, the uh, uh, it, it, There's another one of a, of a collision where the plane and the UFO uh, in, this is the El Paso case. Yeah, this mm -hmm. is the, the one with no Tories and Ruben Uriarte, Mexico's Roswell. I believe you're, this is the one. We talked about it a little, a little while ago. Maybe I should actually have them on the show, and because there's enough there to, we probably should talk about it. Actually, I, I'll see if I can get in 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 touch with them. Um, now, the, the Mobile, Alabama case is another case of an apparent um, crash-related or damage-related incident. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, this one has some serious questions about it. Uh, this is one of few cases where the NTSB actually finally concluded, because they originally said this is pilot error, and that really quite upset uh, the people who had looked into this case and the family, uh, because that's not what happened. This occurred to a gentleman by the name of Thomas Prezios. This was on October 23rd, 1992, and... Uh, he was, uh, it was, this was a little cargo plane and apparently struck this object in midair. And it, what was mysterious about this is there were no known planes in the area at this time. The Air Force was contacted and they said, no, we have no drones, no planes. There was one plane that was somewhat in the area, but it was no, nowhere near this plane. And a big investigation followed. They did find some strange red streaks on Thomas's plane. So it looks like perhaps they thought maybe it's a drug runner plane, 
but they discarded that because there was no wreckage of any other vehicle other than any other plane other than Thomas Prezioses. So ultimately, they were not able to determine what caused this accident other than it was some sort of collision. And uh, yeah, an NTSB spokesman says, and I quote, I don't know of any other accident that we have in our files that states collision with an unknown object. So there you go. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, um, that is absolutely fascinating. So the NTSB in effect admitted this and uh, uh, which is quite, quite unusual. But, you know, something that's not so unusual, but is actually rather sad, is that our free listeners will be leaving the show now. And I would like to thank them all, as always, for uh, staying with us. Not from here is Preston Dennett's new book. Uh, it's a wonderful journey through these mysteries. And the reason these books are so important is that they open your mind and they open you to the possibilities of wonder that exist all around us. Some of it is dark wonder, some of it is light wonder, but it's all wonder. And it makes the human mind and the human being greater. And don't miss Preston's YouTube channel. Is it YouTube just forward slash Preston Dennett? How do we get to it? Yeah, just punch in my name. It'll take you there. UFOs and the Paranormal with Preston Dennett. Okay, great. Okay, now, so free Dreamlanders, thank you for being with us and always watch Dreamland or listen to Dreamland every week. There's no show like it in the world. I, I know that because I'm the only person, I'm the only podcaster on the show, therefore there can't be another show like it. But uh, it's been going on a long time, more than 20 years, uh, goodness, since 1998. And um, we've got a huge inventory of fascinating programming on unknowncountry.com and you can enjoy a lot of Preston Dennett shows on that on the on our on our uh, website as well and it, they're absolutely fascinating Preston what I want to get into now is something that it surprised me a little bit because a story about me appears in the section about levitation and uh, I'd like to begin by saying I'm fascinated with levitation. I have been for a long time. And I recently had Paul Eno on the show. Um, and Paul was witness to a levitation during an exorcism when he was a, a novitiate novice priest and working as the assistant to an uh, exorcist. And he actually pushed the woman down into the, into the, uh, uh, into the chair that she had lifted out of. In, and this was in front of himself, the priest, a psychiatrist, uh, someone else from the mental institution and a number of guards because the, the person had been rather violent. So a lot of people saw this. This happens. It's real. And uh, now let's start with the case. And we'll talk a little bit about my case uh, which you mentioned in the book in a few minutes, but let's, let's, let me ask you this. Have you ever seen this? You, you, I don't think so. 
You haven't ever seen it happen, have you? Not personally in front of my eyes. I've certainly done an enormous amount of research into levitation. I did end up writing a book about it after I found that we had a family friend who experienced this as a child. And I thought, mm, you've got to be kidding me. Ended up asking everyone I knew and found another friend, more of an acquaintance, a friend of a friend, who also had this experience as a child. And that got me researching it. Of course, I've heard about the many saints, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Um, Joseph of Cupertino, and many others throughout history. Uh, there's 300, 400 well-documented cases stretching back at least 2,000 years, right up to the current day. It's been proven scientifically in a lab on at least three or four occasions that I know of. Uh, so it's absolutely well verified. And uh, there's this weird contactee connection that really floored me. And uh, I remember reading about your case, but then I heard about some others. And when I asked Dolly, you know, out of the blue, thinking, no, she's, this just couldn't possibly have happened to her, but I started hearing this from contactees. So when I asked her, she's like, well, as a matter of fact, yes, I did have that happen to me numerous times as a child. So there's absolutely a connection, which is why I put a chapter in the book on this because it covers a good dozen cases. And I'm still getting some lately. This has happened to quite a few people. A guy from Europe contacted me. He was out of his mind. He's like, I couldn't, I can't believe I've been searching for years for confirmation on this. And I found it with you. So yeah, this does happen. You know, the question is what happens? Because you know, we're not light. We're full of water. We're mostly water. And I don't see water floating around in the sky very often, except in the form <laughs> of rain clouds. Um, but do you have any ideas to the how of this? The Yeah, I sure do. Because <laughs> boy, oh, do I. Boy, I'm glad I asked. Because I really wondered about this. Uh, and I think a case that really kind of started to really put the dots together for me was a lady that I interviewed who lived in Seattle who had an encounter and woke up, you know, with some physical evidence in terms of fluids on her body and her blankets all wrapped up and there was an electrical outage. And I mean, there was some circumstantial evidence uh, other than seeing these silver suited beings in her apartment building goes to work and sits down in front of her computer and turns it on and immediately blows it up. And she's like, calls the IT guy, like, come over, put my computer back online, goes to the copier, blows it out, much to the <laughs> concern of the IT guy. And she goes over to the fax machine and breaks that. So there was clearly something going on with her bioelectric field. And I've heard this from other people. There was another Marine officer I interviewed who did experience levitation as a child following a UFO incident. This is when it usually happens. People will be taken on board and in the hours, days, weeks following, they spontaneously levitate. And that happened to him. But as an adult, he was a welder and kept blowing out this very expensive welding machine. Uh, he, his superiors made him go to the doctor to try and figure out what was going on. Another contactee said she 
blow out light bulbs constantly. Well, this is very true for contactees. They affect electromagnetic equipment. I think what's going on here is the contact experience does something to a person that affects their bioelectric field to a degree that it, I think this is the mechanism behind levitation. It is somehow connected to out-of-body experiences. Certainly a lot of astral projectors will report spontaneous levitation events as well. Uh, but it's something that the human body can do. It can turn into a super dynamo. It can counteract the electric, you know, the gra gravitational field of our planet. Uh, so I think what's happening here is this is intentional on part of the ETs because they do wake you up spiritually, psychically. It's a rule, not the exception, it's the rule that contactees have a wide variety of paranormal events. And it's precognition, it's healing, it's, oh gosh, clairvoyance, it's astral travel, uh, psychic reading, mediumship. And levitation is a part and parcel of this. It's an absolutely real phenomenon. And I've now got case after case after case of people who have an encounter and afterwards will levitate. <laughs> yeah. Well, that happened actually to me. And I... I did levitations after my encounter you mentioned one of one of them uh where i had this incredibly disorienting experience of seeing i didn't know what i was seeing until i realized i was looking down from above at my wife lying in bed and i i could i was at first it was quite scary because i thought that you know, I, I didn't know where I was. I thought I was on another world or something until I realized it was our bedroom and it was Anne. But, you know, I now don't have a direct memory of that. And I'm wondering if, it, it, you know, high strangeness plays incredible tricks on your memory. It forces you to forget things. Yeah. Because if it's too strange, your mind just can't wrap itself around it. And this was extremely strange. And when I read your book, read it about it in your book, I thought, oh, my God, I haven't thought about that in years. I remember that. Yeah. And I wonder how, how much triggering the books cause. And that maybe that's why people write you so many letters. Yeah, there's something to that. I've had some out-of-body experiences that I no longer remember. I remember remembering them. <laughs> I'm yeah. glad I wrote them down because I have no direct memory of it. But yeah, this is absolutely a thing. Your account really is, was the one that got me to look deeper because this happened to Dr. X, a very famous case from Jacques Vallée and Aime Michel. He was struck by a beam of light from a UFO. It healed him. But in the weeks that followed, he levitated at least twice spontaneously, all the way up to the very high ceilings. He actually stuck a piece of flypaper on the ceiling so he could prove it to his wife. <laughs> that he actually did this. And Stephen Greer reports at least two experiences. He does, have, indeed. Yeah, I have. Bud Hopkins had cases. I was really shocked to read that in his book. I'm like, oh, he was wondering if this was half-remembered UFO, you know, people being taken up by a beam of light, so to speak. But I don't think so, because there's too many cases. I've talked to people personally who this has happened to, several of them. 
one really interesting case involved a brother and sister and uh, they had had an onboard encounter together were put back down and went down into their basement and floated around for the next hour i thought it was great fun uh, so this is something that alters your bioelectric field to a degree that this happens in dolly's case uh, she had enormous number of experiences with this uh, we didn't cover it completely in the book um, she talked about four or five of them but she had more than that uh, hasn't had one as an adult and her last one i think was age 19 when she fell down the stairs and ended up floating down <laughs> so that was a spontaneous levitation but i think it speaks to this and how people are somewhat altered are spiritually transformed or awakened to some degree their abilities by the contact experience yeah in other words it it, it, it it's exactly it shakes your tree it wakes you up and I, I know it certainly did in, in in most every case i know of and certainly of course in my own i was a i wasn't even a skeptic before this happened i just didn't care and then suddenly i cared a lot <laughs> now, uh, th th there's an interesting case, the Spencer case uh, that Bud Hopkins uh, talks about. And I may have met this individual. I'm not sure. But can you tell us about this case, uh, Bud Spencer case? Yeah. Um, again, this was basically a paragraph in Bud Hopkins' book. And I wish I had the opportunity to interview Spencer. Uh, but apparently he's a well-known broadcaster and pretty, you know, prominent in terms of being well-known. Uh, but as a child, was having UFO experiences and spontaneously levitated. I think it was going up or down the stairs, which really intrigued me because in my book on levitation, that this happens a lot to children. And it's often on the staircase <laughs> for whatever reason. And uh, he called it like, this is, he thought it was a normal thing. He called it the, the floating stage. He thought this was something all children go through, <laughs> which, you know, is a childlike thing to think. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that these experiences are more unusual and that not everyone is having them. Uh, so you that never see animals levitating. You never see lions or horses. Or, mm -hmm. I mean, birds, obviously, but uh, you never see... Like, there's no such thing as a real flying horse. Well, human beings do it, do you suppose? <laughs> or or you, do you have a case? <laughs> I do. Uh, <laughs> wonderful. And, which really intrigued me because I saw this on, you know, one of those paranormal shows. And it involves a moose that ran across a river that was deep. And it was walking on the surface. It was a speedboat going up this river. I think this was in Alaska. And this moose runs right in front of the speedboat. And you can see it walking on the surface of the water. This is part of levitation. I got about 20 cases of people walking on water. Not just Jesus and Buddha, but a number of saints uh, and some modern cases. There's a modern case from Russia of a little boy who woke up because there was a ghost in his room ran out of the house screaming and ran across the river. He was followed by his servants who saw him do it 
they tried to follow and could not. And when he was on the other side, he was dry. And yeah, you can actually see footage of this online if you're interested in this moose. And you can make up your own mind about it because, you know, I'm, I wasn't there. I don't know how deep this river was, but you can see it. The boat is whether or not they're having having people on. Right. But yeah, there's yeah. too much of that on YouTube, unfortunately. It was an interesting case, to say the least. And it made me wonder. So I don't know. No, I, as far as I know, that's the only case involving a levitating animal. But there are a lot of cases of like babies who've fallen several stories and are not hurt. Um, well, Dolly, I believe, was levitated when she was a baby too, didn't she? Yeah, age two, floated right up into the high shelf in the closet more than once. And uh, later, what, I mean, she had control of her ability. What did her parents think? Uh, her mom was not happy. <laughs> her mom was not happy about Dolly disappearing from the house and talking about visitors in her room. And uh, so she she did not want to deal with the unexplained. And when she found Dolly on this shelf that she could not be on physically, it was impossible. She was not happy about it uh, and really wanted you know, talk to her husband and like, what are we going to do? And her, turns out Dolly's dad was a contactee. He kind of suspected what was going on. Everyone knew Dolly had extraordinary abilities. I mean, she was constantly predicting stuff and doing all kinds of paranormal things, um, telekinetic events as well. So yeah, <laughs> they just had to learn to live with it. Uh, That's but, always yeah. the case. Is they end up having to learn to live with it. <laughs> yep. So I wonder if what, you know, I've had, like you, I've had out-of-body experiences. I, I can't induce them, though. In other words, I can't, when I try, it doesn't happen. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences? Because I know you can induce out-of-body experiences. You give a little idea of your techniques and how that works and how you learned and where from. Just run it down for us, if you will. Yeah, I think the real trick is obsessing yourself with the subject and meditating and really focusing and wanting to do it. Uh, for me, it all began following the death of my mother in 1984. Uh, it was a year or so later, I was having a series of very lucid or pre-lucid dreams where she'd come into my room and I'd wake up. I thought I was awake. It turned out to be a false awakening, but I was fully awake, I thought. And she would tell me that she was fine. And I knew on some level that it was her because you just know when you're in someone's presence. And then I would wake up and realize it was a dream and what is going on here? There's no such thing as life after death. And this led me to Robert Monroe's books. Um, he's very well known in this field. He gives techniques on how to do it, which I did. These are basically meditation techniques, relaxation, visualizations, affirmations. And uh, they worked for me. And I ended up getting really good at it. Yes, anyone can do this. It's really a process of physically relaxing. This is where I think most people trip up because it's not as easy as you might think to reach that point, that level of relaxation. You want to feel one of several sensations, which would be heaviness or lightness or numbness. You want to get to the point where you almost can't feel your body. Uh, like where, what position your arms or legs are in. 
Uh, ultimately, you want to get to what's called the vibratory state. And you'll know it when you reach it because it feels a little bit like an electric shock. It can be mild. It can be quite severe. But you will know it when you reach that. And that means you're primed. You're ready. And that's basically the first step. Second is relaxing the mind because we do have this running stream of consciousness constantly going through us. Even when we're awake, we're essentially dreaming because when we fall asleep, it's that stream of consciousness which automatically pulls us into the dream state. So you want to step back from that as much as you can. Slow down your thoughts. I don't think you'll ever be able to stop them unless you really focus hours a day on meditation which if you do, will work to, to pull you out of body. But just step back a little bit. And when your thoughts start to become images and you can hear them and see them, uh, then you're ready mentally. And that's when you start doing visualizations. And this is how I do it. It works beautifully. You just relax for 20 minutes, half an hour, slow down your thoughts and start visualizing yourself running down a pathway or on a swing, going back and forth, on the bow of a boat, going up and down in the waves, standing on an escalator, going up. Anything really that involves movement is very effective. And there are other techniques, like visualizing a location you know very well, uh, reaching out to a deceased loved one, calling out to them. I call that the love bridge. They will be there and they will take you on out of your body to the other side. Uh, that works really well. I've taught this to a number of people. There is one super effective technique that you can do while you're awake. And that is what I call reality testing. And here's why this works. We're spending one third of our lives in the sleep state. And we are essentially conscious there. But it's like a different channel. It's like I don't know quite how to put it, but we are conscious when we're asleep. We're just not aware of it. <laughs> so it's so real, we assume we're awake. Everyone's going out of body every night. But throughout the day, if you ask yourself, am I out of body right now? Could this possibly be a dream? You will ask this while you're in the sleep state. And to really cement it in, you want to do reality testing. So when you're awake, you try to fly, jump up and see if you levitate. I know that sounds it's a little bit embarrassing at times, but do this once an hour, three times a day, regularly. See if you know, pick up an object like a pen and see if it floats. Just let go of it and it'll probably drop to the ground. Another thing is try to take your finger and push it through your desk, through the wall, any solid objects near you. And each time you do this, you're going to be thinking, well, this is ridiculous. I know I'm awake. But let's test it anyway. And one day you'll probably be at work thinking, okay, I'll do this stupid exercise. You take your finger and you push it down and it goes right through your desk. And the whole, all of reality will break away and you'll find yourself floating above your bed or on, already on the other side. And it will be the biggest shock of your life when you realize you are out of body. This is a very effective technique. I know it works. The only obstacle is you have to do it three, four times a day, five, the more, the better. But that is the real secret to going out of body. We're spending a lot of time out of body already, Whitley, third of our lives. Um, 
it's really worth it to remember what's going on at night. Yeah, because we're not, what we call dreams are often something else. Um, Where do you think we go? Do you think we go to what we think of as the world of the dead? Oh, yeah. Yeah, every night. I think this is, you know, having done this for many, many years, having read every scrap of literature I can find on this subject, I can tell you it's as safe as sleeping. We're all doing it every night. There's no real dangers of getting lost or possessed or anything like this. As I said, the only obstacles are fear, laziness, and skepticism. And yeah, each night we float out of our body, we go around our house, we fall into the dream state often, and we're sort of essentially hallucinating and creating an environment around us. Uh, and that usually takes place on one of the lower astral planes. But each night we go all the way up and basically touch source and come back down. It's a rejuvenation process. Uh, this is how we are able to sustain life in the th third dimensional plane. And yeah, we all spend a good amount of time in what I would call the heavenly realms. I've met my brothers and sisters there. We're all fully conscious. I've talked to them. I'm like, you know, we're out of body right now. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, oh, you do. <laughs> Then you'll remember this, right? And they're like, I argued with my brother Stephen about this. He's like, no, I'm not going to remember. I'm like, what? How can you know that we're out of body right now and tell me you're not going to remember this? He says, I'm not at that level. I don't have that ability. I'm like, but I think that's exactly <laughs> the issue. Yeah, uh, it's frustrating because I had the same argument with my sister. Uh, you know, my nephew died last year. Or, yeah, last year in April. And it was the first time that I've had a deceased loved one die because I always will see them at some point. But that night I went out of body and straight to this, the other side and into where people go. It was a clearing room, sort of a, I'm like, all these people are dead. It was a large auditorium filled with people. And there was a lady at a desk <laughs> and I walked up to her. She was the greeter. And I said, hi, I'm looking for no, my name's Preston. I'm looking for James Dennett. He's my nephew. I don't suppose you could help me. And she smiled. Really loving lady. She says, yes, I can. In fact, turn around. He's right behind you. And I'm like, oh, I turned around and there was James. My word. Oh, boy, the reunion was intense. It always is. Oh, Every time I got like, oh, my God, my friends could see me. This is the best thing ever. And he looked so good, Whitley. You know, he was having some health problems, uh, uh -huh. passed away, uh, and uh, he was tall. He was bright. His chest was thrust out. He was glowing. He grabbed my hands. He said, I love you. I'm like, I love you too. How's it going? How are you? He says, you know what, Preston? I'm actually really good. I am just fine. He was smiling ear to ear. And I wanted to ask him all these questions, but he starts talking. He says, Preston, I want to tell you something. I watched your YouTube channel. I'm, <laughs> at it. I'm like, what? <laughs> James. He says, yeah. And I just saw that one you did with the yellow and blue UFO, the one with the lights. Do you know that one? I'm like, oh, yeah. It was one about a Midwestern case where a, a teenager had an implant. He says, right. you're doing a really good job. You, you don't understand what you're doing is really important. You need to keep doing this. 
and I was so overcome with love and gratitude. When you get super emotional, it will pull you back. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Do you ever feel fear that you won't be able to come back? Um, not so much fear, but I've had a few concerns because sometimes you're out there for a while, an hour, two hours, three, and you reach a point where like you start, it starts to become very real. It starts to become the place you're at. And you know that if you don't go back, uh, you will stay there. So you get a little bit of a warning, like it's time to go. <laughs> you have to go. I mean, the, the first few, you know, several, I, sh I won't say few, many times I wanted to stay. And I was told in no uncertain terms, you're going back now. But now I've reached a level where I just know when it's time to go back because it becomes ultra real. And I'm like, well, I could stay if I wanted, but no, I'm going to live out my life here. And I go back. The first time I was taken out i was i was also reading using robert monroe's books and uh i actually came out of my body uh little did i know i would never successfully do it again spontaneously but i've done it i've been taken out a number of times but when i tried to get back into my body my body was like inside like was like quicksilver i kept sliding out of it and i thought oh my god you've killed yourself you fool and <laughs> your wife's gonna uh, wake yeah. up the first <laughs> Scary at all. Not scary, yeah. Yeah. Is, is anything like that ever happened to you? Have you ever had that feeling? A few times. Um, that is a little frightening. It's weird. You know, the first, yeah. you get used to it. I, for me, I got pretty used to it, having done it a lot. Um, but yeah, sometimes you slide back in. And like, I remember one of the first experiences I had, I came out and I thought I was dead. I really did. And that red comes over you. Yeah, I woke up and it was dark. And I thought, well, you know, what am I doing standing in the middle of my room in the middle of the night? And oriented myself, came to full consciousness and looked down on my bed. And there I was. And I thought, well, I probably shouldn't have done this because now I'm dead. And I felt mortal terror, the kind of cold dread that I don't think words can describe. Uh, but I was pretty sure I was dead and that was the end of my life and how sad and awful was this and I automatically dived back into my body and it was an incredibly strange feeling to fill it up like a glass of water or fitting into a jello mold or something putting on a suit it's a really strange feeling and I settled myself in and woke up and a 180 degree turn in my emotions, I was thrilled. I was beyond excited because I had done it again. And uh, following that, there was no fear for me. Though I have had some pretty gnarly <laughs> experiences occasionally with unwholesome character. <laughs> Can you give us one gnarly experience? We're just about finished. Right? But you can't say you've had gnarly experiences <laughs> and then goodbye. We got to hear one at least. Yeah, I would say one. One that frightened me was I popped out of body. I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? And often I'll just explore around the house or go to the other side, but I hadn't really set the intention. It's important to do that, have a plan. And uh, so I'm just wandering around the house and I walked out through the front door and there were three people on the street in front of my house. 
who were ghosts, who were earthbound spirits. You can tell by the quality of their presence. They turned and looked at me, and I instantly knew these guys were murderers, basically, thugs, um, real bad people, evil. And they came at me fast and hard. And the advice people give you who do this is like, you know, just project love at them and you'll be able No, I'm not, I wasn't at that level, certainly. So I just said, I'm going back <laughs> to my body. And I made a beeline for my body. It frightened me. These guys were not good. I did not want to have a confrontation with them. So well, yeah, that's one. Filled with fascinating implications. Really is, because it suggests that there are, presences in the world uh, wandering the world that are evil and there must also therefore be good presences in the world and uh, well there are i've met them mm. tell us a little bit about the good ones oh well what's amazing is you can go and meet enlightened masters people who are fully enlightened i wanted to do this having read about it every time i read about something i'm like well if they can do it so can i and uh was in my you know, popped out of my body and said, I want to meet an enlightened master. You set the intention. And this beautiful woman appeared, a spirit guide. And she says, I want you to keep your eyes opened. Keep your eyes opened. And she grabbed my arm and pulled me up. And it really uh, shocked me because it was so violent that I closed my eyes and remembering her advice, I immediately opened them. And I was being deposited on the other side in a field. <laughs> and there was a man there who I could see was enlightened because they just radiate this wisdom, this power. And he was on a wooden chair floating maybe two inches off the ground. He looked very Obi-Wan Kenobi-like, an old man with a beard. <laughs> and uh, he looked at me very sternly and gave me some advice. It was a, you know, like a Japanese cone, a little riddle. It took me a while to figure it out. But he said, when you, he spoke out loud, which is unusual punctuating each word said when you do something do it absolutely i'm like what the hell do you mean by that and whoop, a tunnel opens and i'm sucked back into my body very quickly uh, and ended up looking that up in the dictionary you know because the way it was used was sort of grammatically strange and basically what it absolutely means in that rep, you know sentence structure is when you do something do it without attachment completely, positively, without limitation, which is very much speaking towards what, you know, you can read in some of these sacred texts. Don't become attached to the world. Um, don't at attach yourself to outcome, you know, positive thinking, um, all these things. It's, I mean, I could write a chapter on just this one sentence he told me. <laughs> uh, I've had that sort of experience a number of times. It was really cool. Wow. What a great, place to end a wonderful fun show preston i really enjoyed it because the the marvelous combination that you bring of wisdom open-mindedness and marvelous stories is just unique i'm so glad you came and spent time with us and preston's going to be back on dreamland would be my guess sooner or later i think the next time maybe we have dolly again and uh we go into what is happening with her but she said that the earth's magnetic field is affecting her contact but let's keep in touch with her and anyway let's we go on down the road together 
two adventurers on the way of wonder, and so are all of you. Thank you so much for being with us on Dreamland. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.